0: Welcome to the Longthread podcast about spinning, stitching and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Longthread Media, publishers of Spin Off, Handwoven, Piecework and Little Loom's magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trinway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at TreenwaySilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Treenway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Ann Mero. Felicia Lowe founded Sweet Georgia Yarns, an artisan hand-dyed company, in 2005. In 2017, she founded the School of Sweet Georgia and also authored a book, Dying to Spin a Knit. So, Felicia, thanks so much for being with me. Oh, thanks for asking me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is your tagline, which is about unapologetic color. And I'm wondering, can you you tell me about that? What does it mean for color to be unapologetic?
1: (gasps) Oh, my gosh. It's related basically to childhood trauma, I think is what it is. (laughs) I think really it Totally, totally is. I wrote about this like a couple of years ago and had to process all of these feelings all over again. But basically, the idea was that when I was a kid, I was kind of initially told that I wasn't really good at picking colors or putting colors together. And it was just something like really super simple. You know, even things like um, you could get these little barrettes where you'd put ribbons in them, colored ribbons. And I think I chose yellow and pink and I tried to put them together and I was told, oh, those colors don't go together. I was like, oh, okay. And then I was wearing a sweater and the sweater was like red. And then I wanted to wear it with hot pink pants. And I was told, oh, those colors clash. You can't wear those together. I was like, oh, okay. And then I went to high school, which is the most traumatic place to go. And I loved bright colors. I loved acid colors. I loved lime green. And I remember... I bought <laughs> these lime green cotton pants from, um, from the store and I wore them to school and I totally got ridiculed for wearing lime green pants to school. And I think that sort of situation caused me to go into a couple of years where all I wore was black because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm scared that I'm going to make the wrong choices when it comes to what I choose to wear. And I don't want to go out and embarrass myself. So I'm just going to wear something that nobody can say anything about. And I did this for a number of years. And then finally, my friend was like, You just look so sad all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's when I started to change things and I started to add color back. And I loved color. Like, I loved looking at color. I loved playing with color. And I just wanted a chance to be able to enjoy color without having to care anymore about what people said or did. So that's kind of where the unapologetic comes from is just to don't care anymore. <laughs>
0: Well it's kind of interesting because you're you're back in a situation where you really where your color sense and how that relates to other people is very important to what you do every day. So it's not only that you're unapologetic about color from your own taste, but this is a pretty bold step to say I'm going to start a company that's all about color. Mm-hmm. And it's really
1: I want to make other people feel comfortable with color. I don't want people to feel Um, embarrassed or shy or shamed or anything about their color decisions. So it's really about trying to help people get some confidence around it so that they can feel free to just enjoy colors that they like and not to worry so much. And I think a lot of this uh, stems around the confidence. And so because I have this background in having gone to design school and I, you know, learn color theory, my my father's a painter. He's like a landscape painter and printmaker. And so I've been surrounded by color and color theory and color knowledge. And so uh, I always think that just, you know, arming yourself with more knowledge can help you get over some of those things that we feel like we might be lacking. Um, So if you just bolster yourself with the education piece, then hopefully the feeling of confidence will come later at some point.
0: You know, when I think about Sweet Georgia, there is a broad variety of colors, but I do think about a particular sort of signature group of colors. You know, your your logo is very much a hot pink. And, you know, when you look through the store, I would say, oh, well, that's that's clearly a, a sweet Georgia group of colors. So there's something kind of instinctual about that still, isn't there? I hope so. I hope so. I feel like, I
1: mean, if you looked at my closet, all of my closet is basically, again, the same color. (laughs) It's kind of like this mulberry, plummy, pink, purple kind of color. I, I like those colors. I enjoy wearing those colors. So they end up kind of just like following me everywhere. But that pink for the logo, when I first started the business in 2005, it was just such a whim. I started the company on a whim you know, putting a couple of skeins of hand-dyed yarn on Etsy. And so at the time I made my logo and (laughs) it was white lettering on baby pink background and nobody could read it. The Mm -hmm. type was super compressed and narrow and long and skinny typeface. And so when you looked at my friends kept saying, it says sweet Georgia yams. (laughs) And they're like, I can't read what you're, (laughs) I can't read it. (laughs) So I just took off the yarns altogether because I wanted to be able to apply color to anything. It didn't necessarily have to be yarn. It didn't necessarily have to be fiber. It was about working with color in some form of making things. And then I changed the background color of everything that we were doing to this hot pink color. Because when I was dyeing, what I would do is any mistakes that I made, um, anything that like looked bad or was a seconds in terms of dyeing, I would over dye it in fuchsia and overdying in fuchsia fixed a ton of mistakes and made everything look better. And so for me, I feel like that color to me represents being able to make everything better.
0: So you started in 2005 and when I think about the number of yarn companies that have come and gone since then, certainly hand-dyed yarn companies, but even major yarn companies that have come and gone since then, you've seen so many changes. Yes. What has it been like to go from your dining room table to, you know, kind of an established place in this industry? So hard. <laughs> so, so hard. It's very difficult.
1: I feel like there's a lot of hand dyers out there because the barrier to entry is not very high. You can dye in your own home, which we all did. You know, you can uh, die at your own kitchen, you can die at your dining table. Um, the cost of supplies and materials is not very much to begin with. But scaling up an operation is very challenging because it's extremely labor intensive work to do it and to do it yourself and to do it really consistently and to do it well. It's just extremely labor intensive. So, yeah, it's absolutely been a challenge. I mean, in order to grow all the other aspects of the company and to get to the place where we are, we had to grow a team and teach people how to dye and do all sorts of things like that. And so no matter what anybody is building in, in this industry, whether it's, you know, hand-dyed yarn or even not hand-dyed yarn, all of this building a company, building a team, all of it is, is it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get in. It's hard to maintain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Because there's a lot about hand dyeing yarn that's just not scalable. I mean, if you if you're making a bunch of skeins of yarn at the mill, you know they send you a bunch of yarn, and yeah, there's a little bit of labor that you need to do, but not anything like somebody literally has to put their hands on every. I mean, there there's the hand in in hand dyed. Absolutely. How do you keep it consistent? For one thing, there's the repeatability, but then you know having having a sort of a consistent brand and a consistent feel. How do you manage that? I think a lot of it has to do with
1: our, I guess, I don't know how else you put it. It's kind of like in-house training. The techniques that we've passed on uh, to our team were very meticulous about communicating how we die. And so it's not just a matter of like, oh, mix this and this and then you get this or mix these two colors together and blah, blah, blah. We're super, super clear about like it's this temperature for this amount of time. And this is the actual hand motion that we do when we pick up the skein out of the pot and how we turn it over and all of these things. Like We teach all of that as opposed to just, oh, this is the recipe, mix and combine and then bake at whatever Mm -hmm. for X number of minutes. It's really like the whole physicality of dying. Mm. And so the goal originally, I mean, the goal really is to have people look at the skeins and not see any. It shouldn't be like, oh, so-and-so dyed this skein, but so-and-so dyed that skein, right? Like the whole goal when I started doing all this dyeing was to make yarn that was consistent for the end user. Because if you're a knitter um, or you're a weaver and you want to use two skeins that are supposed to be the same colorway, but they look drastically different and you can't combine them where you knit them together and then there's like a break here in the sleeve and looks like completely different skates like that is something i wanted to completely avoid so in order to do that we had to make sure that we were making very very consistent yarn making sure that no matter who dyed it it has to look like it came
0: from one dyer one of the things that you have always done is have a variety of bases and not just yarn structures but different fibers and and fibers and spinning fibers that must be kind of challenging to maintain something consistent when there's all these variables going on underneath. Uh, yeah,
1: I think it absolutely, for sure, because different fibers dye differently. Um, I'm drawn to different fibers because I don't know if people know this or not, but I started dyeing because I wanted to dye fiber, hmm. because I was a spinner. And I started spinning and I just had access to all this white fiber and I personally found spinning white fiber monotonous, but I know a lot of people love natural undyed fiber. But I was just like, I don't know how much of this white fiber I can spin. I think color would be really fun. And then I found a braid of hand-dyed fiber. I think it was from Fleece Artist. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and so this is what I want to do. And so that's why I learned how to dye is so that I could dye fiber. And then it was only after like dyeing fiber for a while. I was like, oh, I guess I could dye yarn too. And so then kind of moved into that. So appreciating the different fiber that's available, the different wools, um, the different characteristics of each one of these wools. It's something that I would love to be able to just spread around and share with more people so that they all know as well the differences that are here. But definitely different fibers take up the dye differently. And so they'll have a different uh, appearance at the end of the day.
0: My impression is that dyeing fiber is a little bit harder because it is more likely to felt. There's less of that structure to preserve it. Are you ever tempted to not offer fiber anymore? Mm, We talk about it all the
1: time. (laughs) We talk about it all the time because it is more labor intensive. You can dye smaller amounts at a time. It's not efficient. And even just like the number of spinners relative to the number of knitters is just Significantly different. And so we talk about, oh, should we do this? Should we not do this? But I feel strongly because it is the origin (laughs) of where all of this came from. I feel like it's really important to preserve. Also, because uh, over the past number of years, we have been working on this school of Sweet Georgia. And in the school of Sweet Georgia, we focus a ton on teaching people how to spin yarn. And so To combine the spinning classes with the offerings of spinning fiber, I feel like it's really important. Um, And also, we encourage people to learn how to spin because when you know how yarn is constructed, it informs all the rest of everything that you do in craft. If you're a knitter or if you're a crocheter, knowing about how yarn is made can help all of those other things. So that's why there's such a focus on spinning.
0: Yes, I mean, obviously having a focus on spinning is also very near and dear to our hearts at Long Thread Media. It's, kind of, it's actually our oldest our oldest title, the spinoff. It seems like 2005 was kind of the beginning of a lot of things. It was toward the beginning of this whole hand-dyeing trend. It was also toward the beginning of a huge surge in spinning, as well as, you know, I think there had been some fiber hand-dyers before, but nothing like there was eight years later. So you were kind of right at the beginning of this wave. What were the indications that you were part of something that was kind of unprecedented?
1: I had no idea. (laughs) I just wanted to find other people who liked what I liked. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of put it out there and sort of reach out to a community of people who we're also just interested in the same kinds of things. I mean, I was just spending time every day on the internet, reading blogs, seeing photos of people who had shown like their dyed fiber. It was just always the most stunning, mesmerizing thing to to look at people's fiber photos and dyed fiber photos or hand-spun yarn photos and all these kinds of things. And so I just kind of followed along with all of that and just really enjoyed it. Really fell down that whole rabbit hole, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose with School of Sweet Georgia, you're kind of, you know, not just riding the wave, but trying to keep it going, you're try, trying to, you know, kick it up. What made you decide to start that? Oh, yeah. So this is uh,
1: because it was my lifelong dream to <laughs> write a book with interweave. And uh, so finally, after years and years and years, my my time arrived and I was lucky enough to work um, on a book and wrote a book about dyeing fiber and spinning and knitting with hand-dyed yarn and hand-dyed fiber and all these kinds of things. And as soon as the book was published in 2017, I started to receive a lot of requests to go out and travel and teach and teach workshops all over the place. And at the time, I had a brand new baby. So I have two kids. One was born in 2013 and the other one was 2016. And so I had sort of my my one-year-old baby, I remember taking her, she was like six months old, I was taking her with me on photo shoots for the book. And um, then the book was published. She was like probably about a year old. And I was like, I can't go anywhere. I can't, and I don't want to necessarily go and, you know, be gone for a week or two weeks teaching and traveling and all this kind of stuff. And so someone had emailed me years ago and they were like, we would really love to take a dying class from you, but we can't get to Vancouver. Can you just video yourself and then send it to us? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know how to do that. I really don't know how to do any of that. And so I was like, no. Uh, But it just always stuck in my mind. Oh, uh, this is something that I could do. Just eventually one day video, like just video all of me teaching how I die, what I do, how I spin, everything, and then putting that together and offering that. So School of Sweet Georgia originally started as a course, started as a dyeing course called Dyeing Intentional Color. And it was just fundamentals like this is how you mix dye stock. This is how you dye a single skein of yarn. This is how you dye a little bunch of fiber. And then that moved into the second course that I made, which is called Dyeing Complex Color. And that was about hand painting. It was layering color, glazing, all the different things that you could do to do yarn resists and things like that. And um, so these two dyeing courses were massive. I think the second dyeing course is like five and a half hours long. Wow. So it's a ton of content, but it was kind of like everything about like mixing dyes and how to make all this stuff happen. Um, And then I also taught a color theory class. And I was originally selling them as single classes, but then what I really wanted to provide was support around those classes. Like I wanted to be able to answer people's questions. I wanted people to show me what they made. And so without a community component, I couldn't see what people were doing and I couldn't show or share what other people were doing either. And so that's part of the reason why I combined everything together and made a school so that people could come and subscribe, see all the courses and then also have this community aspect where they could share with each other, with me and teach each other, answer each other's questions, all this kind of stuff. And so now we're at the point where we have almost a hundred classes. Obviously not all the classes are taught by me, but the classes are taught by other spinners, uh, other dyers. We have natural dyers like Kathy Hattori from Botanical Colors. She's taught a lot of our natural dye classes. Caitlin French also teaches natural dyeing with us. And then we have a number of spinning teachers. Rachel Smith from Welford Pearls, who does woolen spinning, that podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Diana Twist. There's Kim McKenna. Katrina Stewart from Crafty Jacks. There's a number of spinners who are also involved. Debbie Held uh, as well. She's taught a number of spinning classes with us. And then I teach weaving classes as well. We have another instructor, Laura Fry. She's a master weaver from Guild of Canadian Weavers. And so she's teaching a number of weaving classes for us as well. Amanda Wood. So all of this spinning, knitting, weaving, dyeing. We also have tapestry, a bunch of other fiber arts,
0: crochet, all of it together in one space. And it must be an intentional choice to keep it all together in one space instead of, you know, having sort of different tracks. You're kind of inviting everybody, you know, you think you're into this one thing, but you're going to have access to all this other stuff too.
1: I know. This has always been a bit of a question and a bit of a challenge because the advice that we've always been given is, oh, you have to be really specific about your niche. And if you're going to do knitting, then you should just focus on knitting. If you're going to do crochet, then just focus on crochet. Kind of like spin-off magazines. Magazine. Spinoff is a magazine about spinning. Mm-hmm. Handwoven is a magazine about weaving. And they're like, separate audiences and separate groups of people. We're (laughs) doing this thing where we are trying to bring together the kind of person who is a multi-craftual maker, somebody who is on the journey of exploring all of the different fiber arts or maybe not even realizing that they want to explore the different fiber arts. And so we have received a lot of information from members who say, oh, I signed up to take your dying classes. And then I stumbled on your spinning classes and now I'm a spinner Mm -hmm. or I came for spinning and now I'm a weaver or I came for spinning. Now I'm a tapestry weaver. They had like no idea that these things were going to happen, but they happened because there was access. Mm -hmm. There was availability. And so that is really what we're trying to encourage is like I was a knitter. I'm Mm -hmm. a knitter who discovered spinning. And then spinning brought me to dyeing and then brought me to weaving. And it's just brought me through this entire journey of exploring all the different fiber arts and different crafts. And I feel like anybody who's come in to knitting knows the feeling of holding yarn in their hands, knows that feeling, loves that tactile feeling. Who knows? Maybe they might also like crochet. Maybe they might also like tapestry weaving. You, You don't know unless you have exposure Mm -hmm. So that's really what we're trying to do.
0: It's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) So you started off with dye courses, and certainly dye courses are an important part of it. Do you think of that unapologetic color as being something that carries through all of the classes? Yes, absolutely.
1: I think that the point of a lot of these classes is to encourage everybody to explore how color works, uh, not just in dyeing but mm-hmm. in all of the other crafts as well. So we talk about how does color work in knitting? Like what if you hold two colors together and marled a, a color together? What happens when you choose colors for color work? How does that work? If you mix and combine colors on a blending board and then spin the Rolex that you make, what happens to the color when you make it into yarn? What happens when you take a hand dyed yarn and then you weave with it? Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of things. It's not just about oh, we're weaving and this is the basics of weaving and we warp and we dress the loom and we weave. It's also looking at how does color work into everything that we do.
0: It seems like weaving has been a big passion of yours. It it seems like you've been weaving at home and then that sort of becomes something that you also do as part of the School of Sweet Georgia. How did you become a weaver? In
1: 2006,
0: I was encouraged to
1: start weaving by my spinning teacher, Mm -hmm. Because I was spinning all this yarn, and I was Mm -hmm. dyeing all this yarn, and she just, she has just (laughs) ever so gently just patted me on the shoulder and was like, now you need to learn how to weave. And I was like, oh, I could never. No, that's not going to happen. Oh, that's never going to happen. And then uh, she let me take a table loom home, Mm -hmm. and I warped it up, and I wove on it, and was immediately like, this is amazing. I love this. (laughs) And then just launched headfirst down this whole path. And it was, it's kind of like, I always talk about how weaving feels like the culmination of everything that I have learned in the fiber arts, in knitting, working with yarn, working with fiber, working with texture. I used to sew clothes when I was in high school. So like all of my knowledge, all of my experience comes into weaving. And that's the part that I feel like I get to express the most. But because it's so time consuming and it requires like a block of time. I'm always very, I struggle with not having that time to do that thing that I love the most. And I also talk about how I love to do it. (laughs) But because again, there's fewer people around me that also do it. I feel like it's very lonely talking about it. And so sometimes I feel like I'm talking about it and um, I just haven't yet found my place in all of it.
0: I do think that's one of the things that makes Handwoven magazine kind of beloved of its longtime subscribers. It's not just we like the stuff, it's the validation and companionship. <laughs> Weaving is such a vital craft over all of these millennia, and yet I feel like it's in a way the least understood of of the people who don't do it. And also, aside from a table loom or a tapestry loom, you have a pretty large loom sitting there next to you. It's not like you're gonna take that to Weaving group one night a week.
1: No, no. That part of it is challenging for sure. It's like, how can I weave? My husband really wants to travel. Like we Mm. talk all the time. We really want to travel. And every time we talk about it, I'm like, but how am I going to weave when we travel? (laughs) How am I going to bring my loom with me? Because I like the feeling of, you know, a floor loom and Mm. like this whole body activity and the beater, all of that stuff. I love it. So I don't feel like I would be a, a small loom tapestry weaver or anything like that. I don't mm-hmm. get the same thrill mm-hmm. that I do when I sit at a floor loom. So
0: Yeah, even backstrap doesn't sound like it's going to really scratch that. It's itch not going to scratch the itch. <laughs> <laughs> there is kind of a challenge when you turn your, I don't want to say hobby, but your passion, your avocation into your vocation. Are you able to be a weaver and a spinner now or are you kind of a CEO? <laughs>
1: so... I always talk about how because we are these multi-craftual people, we love knitting and crochet and fiber and spinning and weaving and all these kinds of things. And you can't do them all at the same time. You only have one set of hands. You only have so much time. And so I talk about sort of the seasonality of crafts and sort of moving through different seasons. So obviously summertime tour de fleece happens and it's very very active, a lot of people spinning. And so I sort of join in that whole situation where every single night, you know, I'm sitting at the wheel and I'm spinning and I love it. And I get to have all that time. I'm making yarn for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then maybe in the fall, I'm not going to spin that much because I'm going to spend more time at the loom and I'm going to do more of that. So it's kind of like moving between the different crafts and still getting time to do them all. But one thing that I tr- I'm i trying to be cognizant of is kind of setting boundaries around some of the crafts for myself. Because yes, I mean, weaving, I love weaving. I would love to make weaving more of my work, but it's very difficult. And so I have to make sure that it stays where it's meant to be, where it can be a creative space of exploration, where I'm not trying to like become a production weaver or anything like that. Like I can't go down that path. I want to love weaving and I want to enjoy what I'm making. And I want other people to also discover the amazing, beautiful things about what you can do with weaving and working with amazing yarn, beautiful textures, beautiful fibers, handspun yarn, all of that kind of stuff. I want other people to come and join that conversation. So that's where a lot of my focus is with the weaving. It's not necessarily on necessarily making my work yet. It's more about teaching and sharing. I'm hoping one day, I'm hoping one day I'll have time to like work on my ideas that I have around
0: weaving. I've followed your, I think your, is your Instagram low meets loom? Yes, is that one of for them? my weaving stuff. For your weaving mm-hmm. stuff. And when I come across that, it's like I can tell whose it is. I remember a pink to yellow sort of gradient. And so I don't even need to see. I'm like, oh, I know whose that is. So <laughs> you have your signature colors while you're doing that too. Yes. <laughs> Do you find that other folks have had some of that childhood experience of being told that they shouldn't put certain colors together or that people are nervous about combining colors?
1: Oh, people are definitely nervous about picking colors, combining colors I know we see it when people come to like the festivals and they're coming to look at the yarn. The very first question is like, I don't know which color to pick. And so they're just looking for one color. What color looks good on me? What should I wear? What can I make a whole sweater out of? Just one color. What could what would that be? Mm-hmm. And then it's even more of a problem when they've they've picked one color and and then they're thinking, well, now I want to make two color shawl. What color goes with it? And the amount of time that goes into like making a decision about which two colors go together, because they're so nervous about making a mistake with it or I mean it it can be an expensive mistake if it's not going to work out and so it's just a lot of anxiety (laughs) around choosing
0: colors do you think that some colors really do go better together I mean is there the the idea of being unapologetic means you shouldn't be afraid to try things but do you think there actually is some design elements some things that are objectively more appealing like would you say that people could put colors together and it really wouldn't go I don't think it's necessarily
1: like objectively appealing, but I think that there's a theoretical foundation of how colors go together and that can serve as a guide. It doesn't have to be the end all be all, but like one of the easiest ways to put colors together is just analogous colors, Mm -hmm. right? Colors that are next to each other on the color wheel, they just automatically really look lovely together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you combine a couple of analogous colors with a neutral color. Uh, Neutrals are huge. So, just like a bright color and a beige, a bright color and a silver gray, like those kinds of things are easy ways to combine color. There's like theoretical color combinations like a triadic color combination or a square color combination where you're looking at the color wheel and it's like three equally spaced colors. I always think that those look garish. Hmm. But theoretically, that is, you know, a combination that they offer in color theory and they talk about. You may or may not like to actually look at them, though. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's really just for your information first and then use it as a guideline to then figure out where do you actually gravitate to? Like my whole closet is all full of colors that are about the same um, because that's what I like. And Mm -hmm. so you're going to gravitate to what you like, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel good about yourself.
0: I have to say that I don't notice a whole lot of that lime green that you mentioned that you love. That's like if I had to pick out the signature color, oh, and you're going to pull out some lime green. I actually see a, a cone of it in the corner. But when I think about the like the signature colors of Sweet Georgia, that's not one of them that, that jumps out at me. Do you think your tastes just change a little bit or is it something that you just prefer as an accent? I would use it as an accent. Mm-hmm. I
1: love it. I love like lemon yellow as an accent. Love it. Yeah, just like a touch of it is nice. Some doesn't have to be a whole pair of pants in lime green, I guess. <laughs> could be like a purse in lime green with like an all gray, silver, charcoal gray outfit and then just a pop of color. I love those kinds of things.
0: That does seem like a, a sort of a teenager thing is to do the to do the accent is the big thing. <laughs> Yeah. It's a youthful <laughs> exuberance. <laughs> exactly.
1: But yeah. we were saying, like, before we went to the trade show um, in Chicago at h h we were calculating, you know, all of our colorways and which ones are the most popular. And 30% of everything that we sell is neutrals. It's like beige and silver gray and navy. I, I'm shocked.
0: <laughs> wow. Like as the yeah. main solid color? As the color? main
1: color. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I'm seeing a lot of people are just, it's a pop of color and a neutral, a pop of color and a neutral. Mm -hmm. And so the neutral goes with every single thing because you need that white space. You need breathing room. I feel like if you put like five colors in a shawl and they're all hue information, it -hmm. can feel a bit like overload. I mean, depends on what you're going for, but... If you're doing like three colors and two neutrals or something like that, it gives that kind of balance, gives a breathing room, gives a little bit of space and some air to whatever piece you're working on. So yeah, I think it just depends on what you're going for. But that's where that's where our customers are spending yeah, their time.
0: Yeah. I almost think that for, for most crafters, how to choose color is as much of a skill and as scary of a skill as how to dye or how to blend colors at a, at a loom. But something like I want to put two yarns together for a sweater. That's almost as alarming. And it's like the reason why I think a lot of people are afraid to choose something other than the the color that the sample was knitted in. It's kind of, you know, that if a store chooses a yarn to make the sample, then all of a sudden that becomes the most popular color. Absolutely. Because it's hard to envision
1: things otherwise. I mean, what we tried to do is we took all of our colorways and we knitted them into big massive swatches mm-hmm. so that people could sort of hold them on top of, you know, kind of like a color, just color testing, right? Mm-hmm. Just to see like, does this color look good on me? Does this color look good as a whole sweater? That sort of idea. That's that's a bit of where we've been going. I mean, when I was young, I don't know if you ever looked at this book, but my mom had a copy of that Color Me Beautiful book. Yes. I. And it was all about mm-hmm. seasonal color and what colors look good on you and stuff like that. And I didn't always entirely agree with the, the findings, but there's multiple different ways of looking at seasonal colors, like what color look, looks good on you. And it's more than just saying four seasons. It's also looking at like how sharp of a contrast does your complexion have? How muted is your complexion? If you're more soft and muted, then maybe the colors that you want to wear are also going to be soft and more muted. So it's not like color information and learning about color theory is not just about hue information, not just like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, but -hmm. it's also looking at saturation. Is it desaturated? Is it vibrant? Is it muted? Is it darker? Is it lighter? Like all of the nuance of colors. I feel like we need to be able to talk about that and communicate about that in order to find what's going to work for each individual person.
0: I remember that book. It was a huge deal. And going to have your colors done was an investment that some people made. Yeah. Going to have your colors done so that you would know what color you should wear. Yes. I did this with
1: my girlfriend. We did a workshop. Really? Yeah.
0: You held a workshop or you attended one? No,
1: we attended one so that we could get our colors confirmed.
0: <laughs> as, as an adult or young earlier in your life?
1: Well, like probably in our 20s.
0: Wow. Yeah. What did you learn? What like what did it you said it confirmed, you said to have your colors confirmed.
1: Yes, because like in in say like the Color Me Beautiful book, it was it made a generalization about like all Asians were winters. Mm-hmm. And I would try to wear a winter colors. And I was like, I don't like these. They don't work for me. It's not working. Why is it not working? And then I think like over time I discovered. Well, I don't know why this wasn't obvious, but that like Asian people come in lots of different colors <laughs> and that there are some people who have cool complexions and some people who have warmer complexions. And so there is oh a huge variety of colors that different people can wear based on if they're warm or cool or all these kinds of things. And so making a generalization that, you know, all Asian people look this way was really, really challenging for me to. wrap my head around. And so finding out later that like, I look better in darker colors that are more like dark, deep autumn, uh, warmer tone, as opposed to entirely cool. But some winter colors work and some autumn colors work and it's not all black and white. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, like you're talking about how does the color options that we offer at does has that changed over time? And I think it has changed as our team has evolved because Mm -hmm. different people on my team look better in different colors. And so we're kind of like looking at ways of like, oh, so-and-so likes these kinds of colors. And so we should also explore this all realm. It can't all be just stuff that looks
0: good on me. (laughs) (laughs) How many colorways do you have now?
1: Uh, We stripped it down. I think that there was a time when we had something like 300 colors and then we did Uh a color call. And I think now we're at about 88 or 90.
0: That's still not a small number. No, it's a ton. (laughs) It's huge. And trying to be able to consistently reproduce 300 colors is just, it's just intense. Yes.
1: And not super efficient. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have a team who's working on this. So it seems like there is collaboration as well as being true to the brand. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that you as the founder and owner are sort of are the brand or how do you see that changing? I know this is a constant Thing. Um, when I was
1: pregnant with my son, 2013, I had to go on mat leave. That was like the first time that I was really, really away from the business. And I remember I had a business coach at the time and she was like, you need to separate yourself from your company because you are not the company and the company is not you. You are two separate things and you have to have the separation and so it's it's always been kind of like a, a challenge and a struggle to figure out that line, like, where is one this and one that? So, yeah, it's still something that I work on all the mm-hmm. time, <laughs> figuring out, like, how much of it is me and how much of it is its own thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And if it's its own thing, then the folks who work with you can also say, hey, I like these colors together. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what it has grown into over time is like that. Sweet Georgia is very much a voice of the team that works there as well.
0: So, you know, you started off as a hand dye company and then you did a podcast for a time and now you have the School of Sweet Georgia and you did a book, which is, you know, has your name on it, but is also kind of, I think has some of the Sweet Georgia DNA as part of it. (laughs) It seems like you are kind of testing the waters in all kinds of areas. Is there something that you're excited to try next? More weaving. More weaving. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I Yeah. More weaving. I mean, I feel like that's where I want everything to go. I feel like a lot of the times I've been like, I'm a knitter. And then I learned how to spin. And I was like, hey, everybody, let's go learn how to spin. And then I learned to dye. And it's like, hey, everybody, let's come and learn how to dye. And I... Have loved weaving for so long. And I've just been on this journey of trying to like do more, learn more, explore more, and constantly be like, Hey, everybody, come take a look at weaving. It's really awesome. You should try it too. And trying to bring people to this world, it's tricky. It's tricky. But that's, I think, where I'd like to do a little bit more exploration.
0: Yeah. It's not a small investment, but for people who get into it, it really does become kind of a calling.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I wish I was much simpler and I just liked one thing and I could just spend all my time focusing on one thing. But, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I do love learning things. And so I think that that's where I'm trying to, like, learn a bunch of things and share them and learn and share. Because I feel like more exposure is great for everybody. One of the things that I randomly sort of stumbled on is Mm -hmm. knitting machines as well. Because like over the past two years, I was not able to do a ton of hand knitting. And so all of my hand knitting just basically fell by the wayside. And so somebody mentioned, oh, hey, you should try machine knitting. And I Mm -hmm. never even, it never crossed my mind. And then now being able to use Hand-dyed yarn, hand-spun yarn in a knitting machine, and trying different things—all of that's really interesting as well. Uh, Learning about circular sock knitting machines—that's really cool. So it is very much like this meandering, long-time journey through all of the different fiber arts. Mm -hmm. Not having enough time to do them all. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's—it's not an uncommon story. I don't think I feel like this story might resonate with a couple of people. Yes,
0: yes, yes. Do you have a favorite weave structure at this point?
1: I am still learning a lot of things. Right now I'm working on overshot and I'm mm-hmm. working on overshot and crackle and summer and winter and so those kinds of structures. I'm trying to build my way towards working with more blocks and things like that. But because I teach and capture my teaching as I go, I have to I'm capturing this part before I can move on to the next thing. Sure. But I feel like a lot of my design work because I have graphic design background, I really want to work towards working with blocks of color and being able to mix and combine different blocks of color and just don't know how to get there yet, but that's what I'm looking at.
0: You know, what you're talking about reminds me of Jennifer Moore. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She has a very sort of a signature color palette. Yes. And that's all about blocks of color. Yes. I took her double
1: rainbow class uh, oh. with Jennifer, Jennifer Moore. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So I loved her, her workshop. It was uh, delivered entirely online, but it was mm-hmm. amazing. And I learned so much. I wove this amazing big, long double weave uh, sampler. And I think that the, one of the next things that I want to try is also deflected double weave because it has that very graphic nature mm-hmm. and also just kind of colors moving in and out. And I want to be able to explore that next too. So Felicia, what's on your loom now? What's on my loom right now? Right now on that loom that's sitting right behind me is actually a double weave sampler. And I was, I've had this on for almost a year Mm -hmm. and I've just been working through, you know, the very, very simple basic things about double weave, you know, making two layers, making two separate layers, joining on one side, all that kind of stuff. But the next part of what I'm trying to do with that particular piece is to learn how to do double weave pickup, which I've Mm -hmm. never done before. And so that is kind of like embedding the two layers of fabric together in some sort of a design by manually picking up the design and I haven't yet done it. I just have to sit and do it. That's basically what it is. So that's on that loom. Downstairs, I have a fanny loom, a Leclerc fanny, which is a counterbalance loom. And there's a summer winter project on there right now. Uh, So it's just kind of like a bunch of different projects going on all at the same time. (laughs) Do you ever die for fun anymore? Mm, I do occasionally in the summertime in my backyard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That must be very cool. It's totally yeah. Like you, you have some resources, but then it's a totally different setting. You don't have to necessarily worry about repeating. No. Nope. More extemporaneous. No. Nope. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my, my daughter, my, my son,
1: they have uh, sort of witnessed all of this stuff in their whole life, you know, growing up, having dyes in the backyard, seeing yarn all over the place. There's a spinning wheel. There's knitting machines. Like they're surrounded by all of this. And this past summer, we ran for the very first time, we ran eight kid's fiber arts camp. And so it was all kids, 7 years to about 13 years old, I think. And they all like learned to knit for the first time, learned to crochet, learned to felt, wet felt, needle felt our instructor Katrina Stewart from Crafty Jacks. She came and she taught like this week long camp. And just watching kids be exposed to this content was so so satisfying and so rewarding to see. They gravitated to some crafts, maybe not all, but some. And um, yeah, it was awesome just to see new people learn things and get excited about them. I think that that's where I get a lot of my high from right now.
0: And your kids are just about the right age for that as well, right? Yeah, they're seven and nine now. Mm -hmm. Well, Felicia, thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time and I can't wait to see what you do next. And I'll be keeping an eye on Low Meets Loom. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. More of my conversation with Felicia about knitting, how to choose yarns for a knitting project, and what's on her needles is available in the Farm and Fiber Knits Library. Thanks to Treenway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.